You are listening to the Legal Community Podcast, hosted by Guy Remond and Dave Zampano, powered by Guider. Guider provides self-service online legal documents supported by your local attorney. Fast, affordable, and in your own time. For more information and resources, please visit guider.legal and enjoy the show. Welcome, everyone, to the Legal Community Podcast. Today, we have Guy Reedman and Andy Nickel from Sputnik Digital, and they will be discussing UX and UI. Gentlemen, welcome. Hey, thanks, Lisa. Andy, nice to speak to you again. It's been a while. It's been, must be six months now, Guy. I hope you're keeping well. Yeah. Uh, all good. Thank you. All good. Uh, if I could just introduce Andy slightly so that everybody understands his background, uh, a little bit about his background, I'm sure you'll you'll talk in a bit more detail Andy actually once I've just done the high level stuff but uh, as Lisa uh, said Andy uh, heads up a company called Sputnik and based in Manchester in the UK uh, and, and Andy and I have worked on a couple of projects uh, together previously he is absolutely my go-to man for anything UX and UI he also has an incredible network of really great people. So I, if I ever need somebody and you recommended Adrian Bentley, our branding guy, and just an amazing recommendation. And there's been a few recommendations. So I always appreciate that as well, Andy. No, no problem, Guy. Do you want to just give a very brief synopsis of, about yourself and, and Sputnik before we dive in? Yeah, sure thing. So yeah, I run a small uh, digital agency called Sputnik. We're really technology partners. So we're technically software guys, but we have a great passion for UX and UI. In fact, as you just highlighted, we're often confused for UX UI experts because uh, <laughs> we're all right at it, but really we're software guys. So we build customer portals, websites, dashboards, bespoke web projects, really, and mobile apps. I love the modesty, Andy. It's a digital agency and we're all right at it. You, you guys are brilliant at it. The best company I've come across in the UX and UI world, really great. Okay. So. Listen, let's get cracking on the podcast. So uh, UX and UI, buzzwords uh, at the moment, but the, they are that because it's so important. It's such an important element to building any kind of website, backend system, or even platform providing services. And it, it's gained more and more prominence. Really, users expect now rather than that, that they're not necessarily pleasantly surprised when there is a good user experience they expect it and if they don't get it they go elsewhere so really important subjects and it's great to to have the opportunity to chat to you about it Andy. i think the first thing actually and you can help me with this a little bit what's the difference between ux and ui hotly debated and search twitter for the answer to that one and you'll get in much of the big flame war but so ux is about user experience it's about absolutely everything to do with the user journey from when they first get in touch with the business how many times you get in touch with them, whether you drop them emails once a month, whether you do push notifications, communicate by SMS, how contact forms, forms work, what fields you ask for. So it's about defining everything. So it's a much more logical scope of work specification for what you're going to do. User interface design or UI is the bit that is really the aesthetics. So it's a design job. It looks at things like fonts and colors and hierarchy. Uh, people often talk about a nice clean interface so decluttering things removing things that are unnecessary but it's not just about fonts and colors and things it's also about understanding what a good web application or mobile application needs so when you fill in a form how does it tell you that you filled in the form incorrectly does it do it when you skip the next field or does it wait till you press the submit button 
uh, are the buttons big enough on mobile phones so that people with fat fingers can, can click on accurately? They're kind of like designers who understand the complexities and technical bits of building for the web. And there are thousands of things to know, um, keyboard inputs and all sorts of things. So it's definitely not just a design job, but it's, it's the design part of the whole user experience. And what I've found from my, you know, obviously my, my past is I ran a, a software uh, engineering company for, for a long time. And actually it's strange really, because when, when we started the company back in 2001, the, the, the whole UX thing wasn't a, a major consideration. It was all about the, the system not falling down and, and just doing practically what it was meant to do. There was no real effort really then. There was effort, but it not nowhere near the focus there is now. And customer ex- expectations were really low. And over the years, it's become more and more important. And actually, the biggest thing that surprised me, because I was sheltered with this. So I ran this software company for 17 years, but we concentrated on back-end development and we partnered with our clients. And uh, I would say 49 times out of 50, clients already had UX company lined up. It's such a different skill that companies that specialize in building backend systems often don't specialize in UX. You bring somebody else in to do that as well. And the other thing that surprised me was the amount of effort required and the amount of time it takes to really home in uh, on the detail. Andy and Lisa, I think you're probably both aware that detail is not my, <laughs> it's not my specialist subject. And lucky I'm not in the, in the UX and UI game, but yeah, I think just incredible amount of detail that goes in and thinking that goes into a really good UI and UX. And actually, I think most client-facing projects nowadays and, and some back-end systems, 50% of the project is around UX and UI and the engineering behind that, as well as the more complex, we call it, back-end engineering as well. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And I think the if you ask a developer to get something to work, they can get some data, put it in a database, encrypt it, make it secure pop it back out, display it on the screen in times new Rome and say the job's done. But it's not exciting or beautiful or delightful as an experience. And and it's come a, such a long way ever since. But equally, the, the, the back-end guys have a lot of contribution to make to the user experience. So because user experience is really about how your customer engages with your product or your website or whatever it is you've got, if your database is slow or your queries are slow, the page load speed's going to be slow, people are going to get frustrated. And it might be nothing to do with the designer or, or the way the front end of the website's built, the HTML, CSS. It could be the way the server is set up or something else. It really is a team effort these days. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I totally agree with that. So, you know, kind of moving on then, what do you, how would you describe a good UX and UI? What does that look like? If it's good, you probably won't notice it. That's the ideal situation. If you notice how clunky something is, it's done badly or not done at all. A, a classic real world example is when you go to a door and you, you try and pull it and it's a push door and you, you pull it three times and you're like, it's a push and you feel embarrassed and daft and uh, whatever else. And the UI UX or the UX solution to that is to put a push plate on it and you walk up to it and there is no pull option. It tells you what you need to do. You don't even notice it. So what you're doing really with, with UX is removing the friction from situations. So if people can log into your app using their face, they'd have to remember a password. They go in and look. The dashboard is simple and they find a start and you, whatever it is they have to do. And, and they just get on and they're done in 30 seconds. That's good UX. If it's cumbersome and they forgot their password and they forget your password button is off the bottom of the screen because the screen's too long, they have to scroll down to find that. They're just going to get frustrating and annoyed. And people have, you know, 
lower, low attention spans and low thresholds for annoyance. So good UX, you shouldn't notice, but it takes so much effort. It's like entropy in the, in the universe, everything degrades to a point of, of frustration or annoyance, and it takes energy and thought to put it back in and make it orderly and intuitive. Just going, going to your analogy then um, about the door, I guess a good UX is, is an automatic sliding door, isn't it? You walk up to it and it opens, it. You'd have to, it opens itself, you'd have to think about it and close okay. itself after you. Absolutely. And it costs a bit more than the traditional one, which is the, obviously the downside to good UX. <laughs> it, it takes time and money and effort. Hey, believe me, I know that. Okay. Yeah, really interesting. Yeah. And it goes back to my point that it is so important and it does take, it's 50% of a software engineering project in most cases now in, in effort and, and resource and including, including money because it's such an important element as, as you say. And a really good point about the sort of the back end software engineering teams working hand in hand with the front end engineering teams and designers to ensure that kind of um, seem experience that you want to give all your clients because it only takes it's, it, the point you made is an excellent one about you really don't notice necessarily a, a good user experience you'd expect it and you get through a process quickly and easily and frictionless and and actually you're probably not going to email the the company and say wow that was amazing it happens yes but Overall, you're not. You just expect it. Whereas when you come across something that is clunky and you are pushing against that closed door, then that's when you notice, that's when you get frustrated. And that's probably when you're going to go and look for alternative software to use. So obviously, this is the Guider Legal Community uh, podcast. We're talking to our two audiences, which are law firms uh, and also end users. What kind of advice would you give lawyers who want to improve their UX and, and, and what are the pitfalls. You've already alluded to some of those, but let's go into some specifics maybe that you think could apply to lawyers. The best thing to do is just be aware of. I think ignoring it or, or not knowing it exists is, is where you're going to control. Every industry has been disrupted. There's stories of Kodak and Xerox and Blockbuster who, if they're with us at all anymore, they're minnows of their former selves. And bricks and mortar stores on the high street are getting decimated by e-commerce. People have seen that coming for 20 years. And the companies that are surviving and thriving are the ones that are adapting. And there's a really good book by a guy called Tom Cheesewright, who's a, a local Manchester futurist. Uh, he wrote a book called High Frequency Change. And it's all about knowing what you do well, but being prepared to change and, and not optimizing to keep doing what you do really well and really cheaply, but optimizing for adaptability. So being able to swap things in and out, know that your business is changing, don't resist it, don't become the dinosaur. So being aware of it is the best thing you can do. And my first recommendation. Yeah. And uh, I, I always see Uber as a good example of that. Change is inevitable and you can kick and stream all you like. Um, and I know a number of cities, the, the, the local mayors or the local leaders try to ban Uber and they, they might have banned them for a, a month or two. But in reality, the, the change is inevitable because it's better and customers demand it. And then when cities, the taxi drivers might be upset, but then the cities see that these systems are better and more efficient less pollution that provide better value for people, then uh, the, the inevitable happens. And I would suggest that there's a lot of sectors that have gone through that. If you look at the, the rental market with Airbnb, you look at the travel market with Expedia and platforms like that. And then you look at the taxi market with, with, with Uber and the way that we now consume most videos and music streaming as opposed to the old DVDs or CDs or back in the day. I remember the... the <laughs> And you do, Andy, don't deny it. The, uh, the VHS videos and the Betamax videos. Yeah, and change is inevitable. And 
you're absolutely right. It's a key point that, that the forward thinking and successful companies will, will embrace change, even though it's maybe not natural in the first place. You get used to it. Companies actually now have training sessions for their teams around adaptability. You can measure adaptability. There are companies offering adaptability training courses and measurements. It's almost becoming a measure, uh, one of your KPIs if your company does that kind of thing. They want to see how adaptable you're going to be because a recognized fact now that there will be more change uh, in the next 10 years than there's been at least in the last 50 years. Change is inevitable. It's accelerating and technology is at the heart of that. And it's how you use the technology to your advantage and stay ahead of your competition is, is what's key. And actually, it might be worth just talking briefly, Andy, what your thoughts on how COVID's uh, affected the the rate of, of technical change. I mean, digital has been happening anyway. There's been no doubt. And even lawyers have been affected by it. And they're using tools like DocuSign and whatever else. It, it, they, I know wet signature is still appropriate in some places, but it, it happens and it is happening. COVID has just obviously accelerated things. But if you look at Zoom's share price, for example, gone through the roof, fallen back slightly since, but everyone's home working. The e-commerce expansion, their share of retail has been increasing by roughly 1% a year. So 10% every 10 years as a share of overall retail. And in the last year, it's gone up by 10%. So 10 years of growth and taking the high street share in one year. So it's just happening and, and COVID's accelerated it. I'm going to use the example of car insurance. Whenever my car's up for renewal, I always go on one of the price comparison sites. And there's quite a number of them over here in the UK, and I'm sure there is in, in, in the States as well. You, you basically sit on your sofa and you, you put your details in. And if it knows you from last year, your details are already in. You change your car, you just have to update it. Or you've got speeding conviction or something like that, as I did this year. Then you have to update it and, and that kind of thing. And you do it from the comfort of your armchair while you sat there watching TV or listening to music. And that's the way things are going. And I can see legal, some legal services being consumed in that way from somebody's sofa. And, you know, obviously, again, going to Guider, the first offering on the Guider platform is, is wills and trusts. And the great user experience uh, that I believe that you guys created for the Guider platform will be enjoyed by people sat on the sofa on their mobile device and they'll be able to generate a will in probably 30 or 40 minutes. And obviously we, we have the added advantage of the connections with all the local lawyers who have probably referred that person to the uh, platform in the first place as well. The, these kind of partnerships are becoming prevalent as well. It might be, I, I just wonder whether you've got any thoughts on, you know, how technology, and you can use a legal example or you can use other examples, how you think technology is, is being used and platforms are being used to drive forward. You touched really, there's a phrase for it, and it's called digital self-serve, which consumers want 24-7 access to stuff. It could be middle of the night, law firms closed, or, or whatever else. It could be your insurance policy, getting a quote in the middle of the night, uh, and people want responses straight away as well. So they don't want to wait for you to get off the phone. So we've all been using email for 20 years. Was there resistance? I think I can remember resistance when lawyers wanted to send letters and wouldn't do emails once upon a time. But this is how say you buy insurance online, there's still an insurance company behind it who's got to do the underwriting and the maths and handle the claim and do all the rest of the stuff that they have to do. But digital self-serve gives them a, an interface where the customers can do stuff 24-7. And to date, that's not been quite so available in the, in the legal space. Healthcare is another one where it's been tough. Certainly in the UK, pharmaceutical companies aren't allowed to 
advertise directly to patients. I know that's different stateside, but because of that, pharmaceutical companies are really hesitant to use things like social media, Facebook, whatever, reluctant to even build product websites because they'll be breaching compliance. So healthcare and legal, I'd say, are the two furthest behind sectors. But legal has really been because there's been a lack of will, not because there's been legal hurdles to overcome to do it. It's just been yeah, via or the, you know, the opportunity. There haven't been tools like Guider in the past. Yeah, and note that all the other tools, actually, what they've tried to do is bypass the, the, the local law firms. And I think that's where one of the, the biggest differences and the biggest advantages, actually. Okay, so just moving on to the last sort of section of the chat, Andy, in, in, in the notes I'm looking at, you've got a discussion around the Lego experience. Do you want to just elaborate on that a little bit? It's a great place to start for anyone uh, with a remote interest in UX or just wants to look at how they can improve their law firm generally. But the Lego Experience Wheel, which you can Google and it's all over the place, explores an airline customer's journey from booking a ticket right through to check-in and boarding the plane and getting off the other end and going off and getting the hotel. And it, you think booking a plane ticket is a thing, but actually this breaks down the journey into about, I don't know, 30 or 40 different steps. And at each point you can go, is this a good experience or is this a bad experience? And by highlighting bad experiences, you can go, how can we use well, technology or anything else to improve that service. It might be coming into the office. Do you give directions from the local train station or bus stop, or do you have a car park or whatever else, or do you have 20% service or do you have live chat on your website or whatever else? So if you can expand, not just a guy comes in and what's new as well. And, and that's what we do. Just think about the 28 steps before and the 28 steps after right through to customer service, referring friends, all kinds of things. It's a really good place to just reflect and look at your own service end-to-end. Okay. Yeah, really good point. Thank you. And then the, so the final one that I've seen actually firsthand over the last 12 months where we've, or 18 months really, where we've built building this platform and the other platform that we're involved with at the moment are at EHE. In your experience, Andy, when's the tipping point from where maybe a law firm might consider doing this themselves or they use uh, a platform to consumer service as opposed to doing it themselves because it might be a small monthly fee or they, they might receive a percentage of the, the sales on that platform and that kind of thing. What do you think the tipping point is? I think once you immerse yourself in how complex UX and UI is, and then you look at how much it costs to develop these products, everyone will have built their own website already and they'll have been frustrated with working with web designers who ask too many difficult questions. And that's just a 5, 10, 20 page website you're trying to build. When you're building software, it's that magnified by a thousand. It's not cost effective. You don't go and build your own Microsoft Word or your own accountancy platform. You go and do software as a service. You pay by subscription. I think making things achievable, you've got to be big. You've got to be a Google to be building big software. But that's where Salesforce comes along. Don't build your own CRM. There was a day when we did 20 years ago. It was a thing before CRMs became mature, but no one would dream of it nowadays. For a hundred dollars in seat, you can have Salesforce. And for a lot less, you can have competitors to Salesforce. My takeaway from that really is that listening to everything you've said, which has been incredibly useful, is that we're talking about law firms specifically here, but it applies to other sectors, of course. Change is happening quickly. The companies that are aware of change and are prepared to uh, be adaptable and move with the times are the ones that are really going to benefit from the change. The ones that don't will either uh, see revenues fall or, or they might. It might be catastrophic at the end of the day if they don't really move with the times quickly enough. And there are options out there and being, it's very difficult as you've just described to, and, and very expensive to, to build this kind of technology yourself. You have to be a big company or you have to be 
a company has a focus on one particular area where you're trying to solve a problem for a sector, which is what Guide is trying to do. And it's far more cost-effective to be part of one of those platforms and one of those communities than it is to try and do it yourself. So is there any kind of final closing thoughts you've got, Andy, before we wrap this up? I think on that point, it's not about being replaced by these tools. It's about becoming a cyborg, augmenting your current business with the digital technologies that enable you to transform and to change with the times. And we've got a runway to do it. The totally artificial intelligence lawyer is decades away. <laughs> That's yeah. Lawyers are going to be necessary. But yeah, I think customers, especially the new generation ones, don't want to be traveling into city centers or going down the high street or whatever else. They're busy people. They've got families. Legals is the thing they need. And, and that's not going to stop. So yeah, I think it's exciting times. Really good point to, to finish on that there'll be a steady migration of services rather than, like you say, an IAC coming in and replacing a lawyer. And you're quite right. The Terminator is decades off. So uh, we don't need to worry about that just yet. Fantastic. Okay, Andy, thank you very much indeed for, for your input. Really interesting uh, and enjoyed the podcast. Thank you, Gilbert. We'll talk soon. And for everyone that's listening today, thank you for listening to the Legal Community Podcast. As always, please feel free to visit us at guider.legal. And we will talk to everybody coming up in episode 12. Thank you for listening to the Legal Community Podcast. We'd love to hear from you. Visit us at guider.legal for more information and please review and share this show. We'll see you next time.